0: Michael, thank you very much. Well, I want to ask you to please open your copy of the Scripture to Revelation 17 once again. I realize it's a very large portion of Scripture I read this morning, and that's because I wanted to, to preach from the whole chapter. Now, before you become afraid, that means we'll finish up at 3 this afternoon. I do want to tell you, this is a bit of a, of a flyover. And just to be very candid... There are details when you get into the midst of this that I'll just touch base on that, quite frankly, I wasn't, I wasn't sure how to interpret and to deal with. But you know what? My commitment has been this, to deal with what I think is plain in the text. That's, that's the thing we can know for sure. So this is going to be a bit of a flyover to see the big picture or specifically to see the reality Behind the picture. Now, one of the beautiful things about reading the Bible is that you get to sample many different types of literature. The Bible really has it all there's narrative, there's parable, there's there's harsh history, there's genealogy. If you get excited about reading genealogy, it's there. You have instances of poetry, instances of allegory. And as we've been reading in Revelation, apocalyptic language. It draws a a big picture to strike the heart through our imagination. But even within the pages of this apocalypse, there is still a very unique type of literature. One that we use frequently today. And it's the type of writing called satire or parody. Now a satire is the use of irony, sarcasm, or ridicule to really expose and denounce the folly of something. It's using using imagery to reveal the foolishness of a train of thought and to make a very valid point. Now satire is used frequently around us. So I wanted to give you just an example of satire so you'd understand what it is. There is actually a Christian website that is a satire it's satirical and it is written to make Points about Christian life in America to kind of wake us up so that we'll see the reality. It is called the Babylon Bee. Let me give you an example of one of the stories from the Babylon Bee from their latest issue. You'll see the headlines on the screen. America Believers suffers brutal persecution in form of occasional ribbing from co-workers. Now, this is fictional, but it's an example of satire. Here's how the story goes. According to sources close to local believer James Beezer, the inside sales representative and father of two is suffering brutal persecution in the form of two or three lighthearted comments made about his faith each year. At a recent summer picnic, the brave martyr is said to have told an intern from accounting that he goes to church on Sundays Repeatedly earning him a verbal beating as the intern was seen persecuting Beezer with harsh words like, Oh, so you're one of those Bible thumpers and hope you're not one of those holy rollers, Bees Followed by a friendly slap on the back. While Beezer's faith was put to the test, the salesman refused to waver chuckling awkwardly and nodding before wandering away to see if there was any more punch. In another incident, Beezer was called a Jesus freak by his boss, who clearly meant the comment as friendly banter rather than a true insult, and was gently chided for saying that he wouldn't join the office parties for NFL games on Sunday because he'd be at church. Beezer told reporters, Christians all around the world suffer persecution and even face death every day. Who am I to think that I'm any different? I count all suffering as joy and endure it for the sake of Christ. Get the parody here? Listen to this. At publishing time, Beezer confirmed that he had been approached by a literary agent who hopes to record his trials in an inspirational book for distribution in countries like China, Iran, and Somalia. So Christians abroad can get a glimpse of what it's like to truly suffer for Christ. You get the point. If you laugh there, you see the point of the satire. That fictional story was to show that in America, quite frankly, we're really not being persecuted. And that's the point of satire. To show the ridicule and the folly, or using ridicule to show the folly behind something. Now, this is nothing new. It's been a tool that has been used throughout the ages. For example, here's another uh, illustration of satire. This is a, a painting called The Ship of Fools by Hieronymus Bosch. If any of you are pregnant and thinking of a name, there you go, Hieronymus. Now, what Hieronymus wanted to show was the futility of the church in the time that he was living. The church was corrupt. And so he draws this painting as satire because everyone on the ship is related some way with the church. But guess what? They're eating, they're partying, they're having a great time, and nobody is piloting the ship. But what's worse, if you were able to see it, and you can look this up online, at the very top of the mast, which is a tree, there's a skull representing death. And that's his point. While the church is partying and caught up with frivolous things, death is leading the way. And it's meant to snap the person who sees it back to reality and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Revelation chapter 17 is a satire. It's meant to show the folly behind Rome. Now, chapters 17, 18, and 19 are close-up pictures of what happened in chapter 16. In chapter 16, we have these bowls of judgment that are poured out. And the sixth bowl brought about the destruction of Babylon or Rome. Now chapters 17 and 18 show that destruction in close-up picture. The seventh bowl poured out at the end of chapter 6 was the return of Christ establishing the kingdom of God. Chapter 19 shows that in close-up picture. So using satire, chapter 17, is to show us the reality behind the picture of Rome that the world sees. Now, we are said to live in a time that relies more on the visual than the written word. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. We rely on what we see more than what we read. Take it in the signage that's around us today. If you will notice, when you drive past a McDonald's now and you see the golden arches, the word McDonald's is no longer written on it. It's just the symbol. Because the symbol represents the cheap hamburgers that are found inside of it. All right, so you know that. This is nothing new. The majority of the people in Paul's or, or the time of the New Testament were illiterate, so guess what they relied upon to communicate things? They relied upon images. Rome was a master at this. In fact, to bring people to worship Rome, they created a goddess. In fact, you'll see a picture over here: the Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. And this was the image that they wanted the world to believe is Rome. Here is Rome. Beautiful, alluring, powerful, seated upon a throne with a staff and holding an orb representing majesty, clothed in purple for royalty. And you're supposed to look at the image and say, that's that's our city. Man, yes, I'm glad to be a part of that. So guess what Revelation 17 does? You want to see the reality of that picture? It's a woman that's a prostitute, not seated on a throne, but seated upon the beast. And instead of holding an orb and power, she's holding a cup that is full of abominations and immorality that are meant to lure the people away from God. You see, chapter 17 is wanting to show us the reality behind the powers of the world that would want to lead us to compromise our faith. Because the early church and the church that is being addressed by Revelation were feeling pressure, they were feeling intense pressure to reject faith in Jesus Christ and to return to worshipping the goddess Rome and all the deities of Rome. You see, the people of Rome had the same idea of our culture today. You can worship any God you want as long as you don't get radical about it and continue to recognize the supremacy of the state. You can worship any God you want as long as it remains private and you don't dare speak in terms of absolute truth. See, the Christians that were addressed by Revelation in proclaiming the name of Jesus as the one true king were risking it all. Every family, every family had its own God. And now, you become a believer. And you say, that God that our father worships, that our grandfather worshiped, that our great-grandfather worshiped, is no God at all. The only true God is seen in Jesus Christ. And now the family's looking at you like, how could you do that? How could you turn your back on what our family venerates? Because now you've opened the door to something horrible all happening to our family. You see the pressure they were under? Not only did each family have a God, each city, each town had its patron deity. And now there's a group of Christians that are meeting in that town and they have said, that God is no God at all. Jesus Christ is the one true God. And now the city's looking at them like, don't you know what you're doing to us? By rejecting our God, you are bringing our society into turmoil. How could you do that? For the believers that received this letter, many of them were tradesmen. They they worked with their hands. And they were part of a union. And guess what? Each union had its own God. And now you stand up and say, that is no God. Jesus Christ is the one true God. But you reject the God of our union. You pick up your pink slip and you can don't let the door hit you on the way out if you don't worship the God of our trade guild we got nothing to do with you then in the culture as a whole you must worship the goddess Roma and now we see the truth behind the picture the times have changed and the names have changed but the temptation to reject Christ is still there How many of you have grown up in families where all you heard was go to school, make money? That's what really matters. People will gauge you by what you own and what you drive. So you better work hard so you can make lots of money. And so you can drive the car that will get everybody's attention. And live in the neighborhood that will make everybody jealous. And now you become a believer. You come home and say, I'm not living for money anymore. If I have to drive a 1986 Honda Accord, but I get to spread the gospel, I'm good with it. And your family says, I just don't get you anymore. When would you become so radical? What if you've been working at a job for 20 years? And a new company has come in and you've been working in a sales rep. You've built up your clients over 20 years. But now they tell you, you've got to fly into cities and cultivate new clients. And cultivating those new clients means you have to take them out and, quote unquote, entertain them at certain clubs that a Christian ought not to go into. What are you going to do, believer? Are you going to say, well, that's... That's just work. i got to work, so i, I got to do this. Or are you going to take a stand and say, no, I cannot do that. I'm going to sacrifice 20 years a career. I'm going to lay it on the altar of Christ and say, no, I will not compromise with the gods of this world. What about the societal pressure that says, you want to worship Jesus fine. You just keep him in the four walls of your church. But don't dare step out and speak in terms of exclusive, absolute truth. See, church, the goddess Roma is alive and well. And it's around us, trying to allure us to compromise our faith with Christ. It's a place of testing. Notice where John is placed in this, in verse 3. The Spirit carries him into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of trial place of revealing. Matthew 4, when Jesus is is taken by the Spirit into the wilderness, he encounters the devil and the devil tempts him, using the Scripture, appearing to be one thing that he's not. John, in much the same way, is in the Spirit, brought into the wilderness to see the reality of what he's facing. So this satire in chapter 17 is meant to strip away the pretense so that you and I can see this. First of all, the world. The world looks like it's your friend, but it's not. It will appear pleasing, but it's not now. Let me be clear on what I mean by the term world. In the scripture, the world is understood one of two ways depending upon the context. In some places, it refers to the creation, the world, the rocks, the trees, the mountains, the hills, the creation that will be redeemed by God. But the second meaning is the one referred to here. The world represents that which is in rebellion against God. The world is the system of thinking that is opposed to God. It's a way of living that is contrary to the principles of God's word. It is the way of living that denies the reality of Christ. In fact, in John chapter 7, Jesus said that the world hates him. In John chapter 15, he said the world will hate his followers because the world is in rebellion against God and is therefore corrupt and evil. But the world, or more specific, the powers behind the world, don't want us to see that. The world goes catfishing. Now, at the risk of sounding like a middle-aged man trying to be in touch with the millennials, which my kids remind me is a dangerous thing. <laughs> if you heard me say the world is catfishing, many of you thought, what in the world's wrong with going cat, you know, fishing? I like catfish. A whole different meaning today. The term catfishing is this. To catfish means a person pretends to be someone they aren't by creating a false identity on Facebook or other social media that's catfishing you create a false presence it's not the reality put up a false picture oh this is me but it's really not well guess what the world is catfishing it's pretending to be something that it's not in order to lure believers to compromise their faith in Christ. The appearance of Rome was power and wealth, but the reality is seen. Look in verse 3. It's a woman on a scarlet beast. We were introduced to the beast in chapter 13. The beast is not good. And if the woman is sitting on the beast, that means the beast is the one guiding the woman. And this beast was full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten ten horns. Look in verse 4. This woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's wealthy. We're going to see more of this next week in chapter 18. She's wealthy, but look at what she's holding. Behind the wealth are abominations and the impurities of sexual immorality. He says, She has the appearance of life. Wealth, here it is. But to get that wealth, you have to engage in that which is an abomination to God. But that's in the small print. You want to move ahead in life? Compromise. Take that client to that place. It's okay. Everybody knows you got to work to eat. It's okay. That's the lie of the world. The world promises life, but gives death. It promises fulfillment, but leaves us empty. The world promises satisfaction, but leaves us dissatisfied. And the words are stark. This worldly system that seeks to allure us is nothing but a cheap prostitute. This is old language from the Old Testament. The language of prostitution and adultery was used to describe the things that would lure the people of God Away from God who is their husband. The world. Believer. The world will entice you. To cheat on God. God says. Love me above everything else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. The prostitute of the world will whisper in your ear. Don't be so radical. You don't have to be fanatic. Moderation. You need time for yourself. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. The prostitute of the world says, love them as long as you get what you want. After all, don't be a doormat. Why should you care? God says, flee sexual immorality. The world says, that's crazy. You wouldn't have these desires if you weren't supposed to act on them. Why would you deny yourself? The world whispers, it won't hurt anyone. You've earned it. The world is not our friend. It will lie to us to lead us away from God in any incremental step that it can. Because its ultimate goal, whether it be by small steps or large steps, is to lead us to drink from the cup of the abominations and the impurity of things that bring destruction. That's the reality. The reality is also that this world will fool us by trying to imitate the things of God. So know the original. The world wants you to think that it's good and that it is of God. Look at the description of the beast in verse 8. This beast you saw, now listen carefully, was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. This is language mocking, mocking the beast who wants to appear like he's Jesus. Remember, when the beast was described in chapter 13, it said it was, and then it was not, and it is again trying to imitate the resurrection of Christ. But it is clear this is deception, trying to convince the world and believers that this system is really the Savior. That what you're looking for will not be found in Christ, but in the culture around you. The same language is used in verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. But it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So this beast is associated with these these heads that will rise. This is where it becomes very difficult to understand. In verses 9 through 11, we are introduced to the seven heads. And the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, it's clear this is a reference to Rome. Rome was built on seven hills. The, the readers of this would recognize this is Rome. But here's where we understand that apocalyptic language is flexible at times. Because look at verse 10. The heads, that's the they, are also seven kings. So they mean seven heads for Rome and seven kings. Five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. And then the beast that was and was, is not, it's an eighth king. But it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. Now there have been a lot of words written about what this means. A lot of it depends upon when you date the book of Revelation it depends on when you begin counting the Caesars. Was Joyous Caesar the first Caesar or was Augustine? It depends on what you do with the four Caesars that happened in rapid succession after Nero committed suicide. Do they count as one or are they several? But what if? What if it was a reference to the emperors the readers would have understood at the time, but also to something more? Remember, seven is the idea of completion. And if five have passed, and one now is, and one more is to come, and then even an eighth, could it not be saying that Rome is but one manifestation of the beast that will fade away, and that there will be other manifestations, but they come and they go until the final one ordained by God. Empires rise and go they rise and then they fall. Rome, the Byzantine Empire, French Empire, English Empire, and dare I even say American culture. They rise, they exalt themselves in pride and materialism and immorality and then they fall until the time comes when God brings about the last That's why I think this is Rome, but it's more than Rome. Because it's speaking to us today to remind ourselves where our redemption is found. It is not found in the gods of our culture who tell us, if you're looking for hope, then go out and find it. Go out and shop. They will try to tell you that if you've had a bad day, rather than laying it before the crown of Christ, lay it on Visa and let it go out and bring you satisfaction. The culture around us tells us that if life is tough, just get away from it all, man. Pamper yourself. Forget it all. Lose yourself in the false reality of the media. And you don't have to engage with real people or real life. That's what the world tells us. The world says if you're angry and you're hurt, you give it back to them in spades. Because that's what they deserve. That's the voice of the beast. Whispering, alluring. That's where we have to be aware. And this is the choice before us. That the reality of this world is that it is self-destructive. Look at the very end of what happens. The waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, the culture, the world, the beast reaches far. The ten horns that you saw... They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked and devour the flesh and burn her up. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind. Rome that was presented as the eternal city would fall. And it would fall by God's design because inherent in any sin is its own self destruction. Inherent in any sin. That's what's being revealed here. The culture will fall. It will be destroyed as an act of God's judgment. Romans 1 says the wrath of God is active even now, turning people over to their sin, releasing them. Church, be aware. The greatest threat to our nation is not radical Islam. It is the corruption, vice, and sin that is found within our hearts. That's the greatest danger. And that's why Christ is the only solution. The beast wants us to give ourselves over to that vice. But any sin has within itself its own self-destruction. Gossip. How long will it be before you spread so many lies and tell so many half-truths that people stop listening to you and any credibility is gone? What about greed that leads to debt, that leads to working more and more and more to get ahead, but your family is grown and gone? and You wonder what happened. What about lust? that one click on the computer screen that is so tempting at the moment but leads to even darker places and even worse addictions sin always has within it the seeds of its own destruction in 2011 the Austrian swim team was getting ready for the summer games they came to Florida to get away and I figure it's easier to swim in Florida than Austria so They came to Florida. They took a trip to the beach. One of the young men, a swimmer, 19-year-old Jacob Millay, decided it would be fun just to start digging at the beach. He kept digging and digging and digging until he had dug a hole seven feet deep. And then he decided, I've dug a big hole. What do you want to do with a big hole? Jump in it. He jumped in the hole. And the minute he jumped in, the walls collapsed. And he was buried alive. His teammates saw what happened and they were able to get to him and to dig enough so that he could breathe. Rescuers arrived, 60 of them. It took two hours to dig him out. Now I want you to listen. The point of that illustration is this. We dig our own holes by rejecting God. And the thing is, you and I cannot dig ourselves out of those holes. It takes a force outside of ourselves. And that force is Jesus Christ. Notice, all the kings that support the beast, in verse 14, they make war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will conquer them. We'll see that in chapter 19. It's not even a battle. Jesus appears. Bam! Game over. There's no fight. He is, as it says here in verse 14, the Lamb, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Readers, it's to say, where are you in this? Have you cast your lot with the culture around us? Because notice the warning in verse 8. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The lines become very clearly drawn. It's the non-believer who is enamored with the culture around us that does not see the danger. But it is the believer who says, I will side with the lamb because the lamb is the lion. He is victorious. See the reality. The world leads to death. But see the reality of Jesus. I love the story that is told of one of Constantine's sons. That's why I love reading church history. Constantine was the emperor who proclaimed that Christianity was now the religion of the empire. But it didn't last. One of his sons by the name of Julian came to power. Let me give you a little taste of what Julian was like. This was his nickname, Julian the Apostate. Julian renounced Christianity and tried to revert the kingdom back to paganism. Everything Constantine did, Julian tried to undo. Persecuting Christians, the story is told that some of Julian's soldiers had captured a Christian. They were having fun beating him, torturing him, and they started to get tired of it because they'd been mocking him about this carpenter God, this carpenter God that you worship. When they were about to quit, they looked at him and they asked with scorn in their voices, where now is your carpenter God? It said that the prisoner looked up through pain, sweat, and blood. He said where now is my carpenter God? He is building a casket for your emperor. Our God is victorious. Where are you casting your life? With the harlot that is riding the beast or with the king of kings? Would you please bow with me right now?